I'm Nareet Ben. Welcome to Life Deconstructed. Patricia Sexton spent a decade in banking from London to Tokyo to Wall Street, racking up a roster of major clients, 6.30 a.m. on the trading floor, making the kind of money to support the kind of New York life you see in sitcoms, you know, where the apartments are way bigger than they should be. But her path to fulfillment meant saying no to a coveted job at Goldman Sachs, leaving it all behind and, wait for it, interning at a TV station in Mongolia. She's anchored a talk show on pursuing passions for Sinovision, authored the book Live from Mongolia, and launched an incredible project called The Happiness Idea. More than anything, Patricia's path has been filled with surprising moments and emotional stories, from a powerful week alone in Tibet to saying no to a massive check from her finance boss and a party in Hong Kong that changed the course of her life. I caught up with her at home in New Zealand. Patricia Sexton, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So I want to start with you at the very beginning, but before that, maybe just tell me how life is uh, New Zealand COVID life so we can all be jealous for a moment because I believe you're in the best place in the world (laughs) right now to be. It's, It's been Thanksgiving and I was so grateful to be able to sit around with my friends and my family and share a meal and present company. And at one point I realized I was drinking out of someone else's glass and I thought, Wow, that doesn't happen in many countries right now. <laughs> no, not at all. Even just being physically with people. So it's good to know there's a place in the world where there's a, a vision of what it will be eventually. So I want to go with you and, and really start from the very beginning from sort of childhood. Your story is so interesting. The path you've done, I find incredible and so brave. So you started out, I mean, born and raised in Cincinnati, I think you're the only girl, right? You had all brothers. Tell me a little bit about growing up. I mean, what your childhood, what growing up was like for you. Well, growing up was an adventure. Um, I grew up in the, I don't want to say, but I will be honest. I grew up in the 70s and 80s. And it was a time when, you know, it was the latchkey kids, which I, I wasn't a latchkey kid, but parents let their kids roam free. And it was, my brothers and I would go off to a park that was enormous, a forest really, miles away with my parents not really knowing where we were, no cell phones, no way of making communication. We would make forts and uh, we tried to dig a hole to China and stopped by lunchtime. (laughs) Glad you called it quits at some point. (laughs) It was too hard. We climbed trees. We played. We had a big posse of kids and we just had so much fun exploring. And I think that was It was pretty special looking back on that time. And I wish I could give that experience to my kids. It's a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah. A lot different even. I've read your book, of course, which I loved. And in it, you talk about how the way you grew up also impacted, I think, some of your choices later on growing up without a lot of money and sort of seeing your parents, how they scrap together to make it all work. What is sort of your memory of that? What is your vision today of how that impacted you? Well, my parents instilled in me a very, um, very strong sense of right and wrong. My dad quit slash was fired from a job that didn't pay a lot of money, but fed, you know, put food on the table. When I was about, uh, probably about 14, he was a school teacher at a parochial school and 
I think I was saying in the book, so I don't, I feel sometimes I feel like I'm, I'm letting my parents down by revealing this, but I must have, I think I revealed it in the book that the, their combined income was some very, very low number, a family of six with four kids. And I think they were making like $15,000 a year combined income. My dad left the job because of a, a challenge he'd been made by the principal who was a Catholic nun. And he said, no, I, I can't deal with this anymore. Even for the money, I have to do the right thing. So I took with me at that time, I was old enough to understand that even when it comes to money, you have to do the right thing. Money is not the, the destination. It kind of facilitates the journey. I did forget that lesson for a little while when I started out, you know, I went to university and the first opportunity I got, I didn't do what I was passionate about in university. I didn't study what I was passionate about. I knew that I needed to make some money. I had a lot of debt. So you were searching, I mean, early on, the there was a the notion of the need for security. Yes. So I was really passionate about food in college and I wanted to become a chef. And I had a couple of other things I wanted to do. You know how you are when you're in your like early 20s, 18, early 20s. Sure. But I ended up deciding to go to Wall Street. Let's pause there for a moment. So you go from Cincinnati to, to Cornell, I believe, right in upstate New York, top school. And how do you end up making that leap then? I mean, you have all these other interests. How do you end up going to Wall Street, hardcore banking? It's a really um, one of those things where the stars aligned one day. I'd applied through our career services office to have a, an interview with someone from Solomon Brothers. And Solomon Brothers is one of those top firms. I didn't really think they were going <laughs> to talk to me, but they made an appointment with me to have this interview. There was a massive snowstorm in New York that morning. I got a call from the career services office saying, I'm sorry, all the interviews are canceled. The woman, the representative from Solomon is going to come in. Um, at some point during the day, but you might as well not even wait. And I thought, wait a minute, if she's saying this to everyone, I'll be the one who waits. So I bought a bagel at College Town Bagels, which was like famous for their giant bagels with amazing cream cheeses. I sat in the office, the career services office, where she was holding the interviews, if she was even going to arrive. I waited for her to, to come. She finally did. And I said, <laughs> before she even sat down, I said, hey, I bought you lunch. I know you must be hungry after waiting to get to New York or to Ithaca through the snowstorm. And she said, I'm going to hire you. Smart, smart college student. That was a good move. It wasn't my math brain. It was buying someone a bagel and just, you know, it was an opportunity. It was a human connection. I mean, mm. that's that's pretty brilliant, I got to say. But there's a, a mentor of mine that in, in journalism, and he used to tell the story of how he got a mob guy to talk to him for an investigation. He says, I showed up at his house with a with a hot pizza and he just couldn't say no, he let me in. So <laughs> food, I mean, you found a way to use food, right? Food opens up the conversation. <laughs> your, your situation was a little less dangerous, <laughs> thankfully, Probably. but still. So, I mean, a spoiler for people who haven't yet read the book. I mean, you spent 10 years as a banker at Salomon Brothers at Credit Suisse, also in, in different locations. Tell me about the beginning. I mean, you compete as a trainee when you're starting out in this world that you're already not really sure you want to be a part of. Is it the the sort of survival of the fittest bro culture that we are made to believe in the movies? Yes and no. I never really felt quite smart enough to be there. And that probably fueled some of my decisions, you know, in hindsight. The culture on Wall Street has a duality like most things in life. Some people are really rough around the edges, um, as they are in most industries. And you, you get these stories out of Wall Street of bankers doing really crazy things. And a lot of them are true. 
But there's also real kindnesses um, on Wall Street because there are real people there. And so I made some very close friendships that I still have today. Some of the crazy things that we did were, you know, we had a lot of bets. Someone bet me a thousand pounds when I was working in London that I couldn't eat a teaspoonful of the hottest hot sauce in the world. <laughs> and so I did and I suffered. Oh, I suffered. You suffered, but you got paid, I, I hope. I got paid. <laughs> for, for suffering. Yeah. How, I mean, if you're in the situation where you're saying you, you didn't feel quite smart enough, I mean, that makes me think of the sort of self-doubt or imposter syndrome that pretty much everyone has in some situation at some point. How do you, how do you deal with that? I mean, for you, what was your way out of that? Or Because you, you were obviously very successful. I mean, you were good at what you were doing. I really threw myself into sort of a, a niche market, if you will. I think at the time where I was um, questioning this, I had been sent off to Tokyo. And so I took the opportunity to learn about Japanese politics and the Japanese banking industry. And so I was able to deliver something that a Westerner who was speaking to Western hedge funds typically didn't have that experience. You know, you just have to figure out what your niche is. And that's what I did. Right. Every That's a good advice. Everyone does have a niche, even if it's not obvious on the face of it, and sort of something that makes them, that gives them the edge, even if it's not the necessarily the obvious thing you'd think you'd need in a, in a specific job. I mean, you mentioned Tokyo. How was that experience? I went to Singapore first. The Asian financial crisis hit in 1998, and I was a brand new banker with so little knowledge of the rest of the world. It was incredible that I... <laughs> They needed someone to go. There was no more headcounts. So they weren't allowed to hire anyone. And they sent me to Singapore to trade with a, basically a couple of senior traders. And it was incredibly stressful. It was a baptism by fire. I didn't even have time to think about whether or not I could handle it. I just had to get up every day. And the markets were moving in ways that are historically almost impossible. There was an article in The Economist at the time where they put like the probability of this happening at point and then 40 zeros, and then 1%. Wow. It was astonishing. Uh, people were losing millions of dollars overnight. One of the guys I worked with lost, I think, 15 million US in a single night with a, a tiny, a tiny trade that he did. It was very, very difficult. But also, it was quite exciting. And this is what, you know, would fuel my career later on and, and what my interests are. It was quite exciting. But after Singapore, I got moved back to New York. Then I went to San Francisco. Then I went, you know, I went here and there for a bit. And then finally, my boss said, you've done well in Asia. Why don't we send you off to Tokyo? And I, I said, when can I go? I'd always been fascinated with Japan. And Tokyo was a real turning point for me. I was about, I think I was 27 at the time. And I really loved it there. Part of life is the personal side and you know, there's the professional side, but I really thrived personally. I discovered, it's like I woke up in Tokyo and started discovering what it is that makes me, me. And it was a real curiosity about the world around me. I went to Tibet at that time and you know, I, I got to travel to places I wouldn't have naturally had access to when I was living in New York, or maybe even an inclination to travel to. What do you think it was that allowed you to come to more of an understanding about yourself there? I don't know. I, I on a whim, made this decision. I had, you know, holiday, you have in banking and probably lots of other industries, you have mandatory holiday. So I had two weeks that I had to take off. And I thought, where's the place that's, you know, unseen by a lot of people? And of course, I came somehow came to the idea of Tibet. And when I got there, I somehow managed to go on my own, which is a little bit unusual. And I, looking back, I don't really know how this happened. I don't know if I just came in contact with the right person. 
but the agent who set it up, I was able to travel completely alone. And in so doing, um, I spent a lot of time that week or so that I was in Tibet and Beijing by myself, just thinking, unearthing a few things about myself and what I wanted to do and see going forward. At some point, I said to myself, okay, I'm 27. By the age of 30, I will leave banking. I'd had that inkling in my mind earlier on in my banking career, but it was in Tibet that I thought this has got to happen. I, I have such huge passions outside of banking that I, you know, I want to pursue those. So let's talk about that because you ended up making, following through on that promise eventually. And something that I think is so much easier said than done. And so many people think about or dream about some for their entire lives, but don't actually make the move. And we're talking about a very lucrative career, you know, something that is rare also for those kinds of ages. And I believe you were also approached by Goldman Sachs, which is like, you know, the dream, the banker's dream at this point. And I mean, did you have a specific breaking point? Where where was the moment that you said, okay, now's really the time I'm going to go and I'm going to leave this all behind? Well, to speak to the point about people wishing all their lives to follow a dream and being unable to, I must say that I was incredibly fortunate to have a bank account that was full. That didn't stop me from having the same insecurities that a lot of people do. It's just that I was able to financially address those insecurities. I was really desperately anxious about money, uh, you know, and that comes from a childhood without. But when I sat down with Goldman Sachs, I sat down with a guy called Bob, who um, I, I still speak to him now and again. And I told him that I had this opportunity to go off and pursue a dream. And at this point, Mongolia was on, on the table as a, as a possibility. And I said, look, I've got this option to go off to Mongolia. And he looked at me straight in the eye, this very senior banker from Goldman Sachs who was running foreign exchange sales. Like you kind of don't get to a, a more top of your game in this particular industry than that. And Bob said to me, go follow your dream. And you can always come back and talk to us, but go follow your dream. Wow. And I thought, wow, even at the time, it was just this watershed moment where a guy who's who's given his all to his own career is telling me that this is not the path you need to be on. Go and do your own thing. It's pretty powerful. That sounds incredible. I mean, I think for me, I made the decision to, to leave New York, to leave. Uh, I was working at GQ at the time and to go move to the other side of the world and, and do a master's and sort of give a shot at something else. And I know that I was actively sort of seeking out advice and conversations from mentors, but always hoping to sort of hear that, mm -hmm. you know, to hear what you heard from Bob. Like, you, you know, and I find a lot of times that's the case. You're kind of looking for validation, looking for advice from other people, but you know what you want to hear, which already tells you something about what decision you should make. I think that's the surprising um, duality of bankers, that the stories we hear about bankers are the crazy bets and the bad behavior, but there are also these real people in banking, several of whom said to me, go off and do it. My boss at Credit Suisse, when I resigned, he said, if I knew then what I know now, I would have done the same thing you're doing. And then he said, but not in Mongolia. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have then any moments of thinking, well, I've already worked so hard. I mean, you've spent 10 years building this up, building this career, building this life of I've worked so hard and spent so much time to get here kind of thing. I had this moment with a very difficult client. Um, he was famous for being incredibly difficult, especially to women. 
And I don't know why they gave him to me. I was not the right person to cover this guy. But in any case, um, I really struggled with him and he ended up being the straw that broke this camel's back. One day I called him to tell him what was going on in the market. I called him at a bad time. In hindsight, I could have seen that. In the market every morning, there's a particular data piece that comes out. On this particular day, there was an important data piece. I called him just before the release of the data and I said, here's some information I have that I think might be important to you. And he said, I will edit it. He said, uh, are you effing stupid? Do you know what time it is? And he put down the phone and I thought, you know what? I don't need this anymore. I had made a promise to myself that by the age of 30, and I was just approaching my 31st birthday and that time, that clock was ticking in my mind. And I thought enough of this. So I stood up, I went to the toilet where I had a solid good cry for an hour. I walked to my boss's office, which unfortunately was completely all glass so everyone could see me. Just like in all the sitcoms and movies about finance, big fancy glass office. <laughs> it's glass office. <laughs> I'm sobbing and I said, I quit. I'm moving to Mongolia. And that was that. Wow. Well, first of all, this was all in, in pursuit of an interest in journalism for you. And I worked in news and broadcasting for like over 13 years. And I know there's always been in this field, this like old school, strict path to sort of making it you know, starting at a local news station, working your way up, hopefully getting noticed on a national level, like this, this classic US way, which is changing, but still, I'm definitely at that time. Most people don't think, okay, I'll, I'll go to Mongolia. How do you make that decision? How is that the place you end up going to pursue this dream of journalism? Well, that's the thing. At the time, I didn't realize journalism was a little bit wide of the mark of where I was headed professionally. But the other part of it was I have such a passion for travel, adventure, Asia. And so I just Googled. I simply Googled uh, journalism, internship, Asia. I didn't think I would get noticed. Um, I was at that point, you know, 30. Most of the people I've met who are starting out in broadcast news in America are quite significantly younger and they've had an educational background. And I had neither of those things. So I thought, where could I go to quickly make some things happen that I don't know. It was a bit of an arrogant assumption because why would Mongolia let me? Well, a right assumption. Yeah, it was a it was a bit of a lotto ticket. But Mongolia had a a program for uh, people who were interested in journalism, as did a number of other countries. Um, Ghana, there was radio, and it was brokered through a probably I think a for profit organization that set up people who wanted internships with internships. And so I ended up interning at the Mongolian National Broadcaster. What was interesting was. Beyond the agency's ability to broker, I ended up having quite a close relationship with the news agency there. I worked with a couple of people who'd come from overseas, but mostly with Mongolians. And so what I had anticipated coming to fruition was a real journalism internship, a real feel for what happens in a newsroom and on set and with breaking news. It was a little bit difficult to understand at times because the language barrier was very difficult for me. And Yeah, breaking news is hard enough and intense enough, but I can't imagine to be surrounded in another language. How was it versus what you expected? Because I guess if, correct me if I'm wrong, but the sort of interest in journalism was there for you for a long time. In the book, you do an amazing job of really kind of taking us into the experience of arriving there and finding your way and the host family you're staying with. And there's so many interesting anecdotes that sort of give color to this experience. Once you're finally there, you've made this dramatic life change. Was it anything like what you expected? No, I don't know what I expected. I tend to go into things blind, which um, has a strength and has a real weakness. And moving there 
living with a family, it was so overwhelming. And I guess at first I found myself overwhelmed by those, those things. I was really still, even though I had been traveling for a long time by that point, I'd been traveling professionally and I had things that, that connected me to a place. I had a career that made, you know, that I understood, but this time was completely different. I was so, so unmoored. There's got to be a better word for feeling completely ripped from everything you knew. And I struggled. I probably, you know, looking back, I probably could have checked in with some mental health professionals because I was really going through so many ups and downs that could have taken place anywhere in the world. It's just that I was without my culture, without all the context that you sort of build up over a lifetime. And I was trying to figure it out. And I made a lot of mistakes. But I learned more about myself. It was like that week in Tibet. I learned more about myself in Mongolia than I probably ever have. What I'm capable of, how to learn from other people, respect for another culture, learning from another culture, what IRAG tastes like, quite an acquired taste. <laughs> if you had all this growth journey there, and you're doing it in your early 30s, not as a sort of totally lost 18 year old, just, you know, backpacking around. So you've already come to know yourself to a certain extent by then, but like maybe a different version of yourself. How do you think you were actually different when you left there? Wow. That's a great question. Wow. How was I different? I, I think I went into the experience with an arrogance that perhaps this is quite embarrassing to say, but perhaps I was owed something. I mean, here I was, I showed up for a thing and I wanted to have the thing, <laughs> but that's not the way it works in the world and particularly in another country. And, you know, later on, after this realization, I would go on to work with someone from the Mongolian mission to the United Nations in a somewhat limited, but heartfelt and sincere attempt to say thank you to the Mongolian people at large for allowing me to come to their country and expect something. You shouldn't expect anything when you go overseas, but I, I did. And I got this amazing opportunity to anchor a broadcast. And at the end of my stay, when the agency relationship that I mentioned before had ended, the director of the English News said to me, can you please stay on? And it's probably you know, one of a few regrets in life. And that's one of them is that I, I should have stayed and seen that through. But that um, insecurity around the financial aspect. I still had my apartment in New York. I was worried about all these things. I ended up caving to that and I went back home to New York. I looked at the stack of bills. I should have stayed is what I'm, I should have stayed and seen it through and explored Mongolia a bit more. I would do it later, but without the connection anymore to the news network. So you left feeling like you, you were right about your passions, if I'm understanding you right, in terms of maybe, you know, your life dream isn't to work at this Mongolian news station, but you had taken the right path up, up until that point before you decide, okay, I got to maybe go back to reality in a sense. Well, when I got back to New York and I saw that stack of bills, I thought, oh, oh dear, um, I had this bifurcation in my life where I could either choose to pay the bills or I could continue to choose um, to pursue the dream. At the time, I'd had a job offer from JP Morgan and a tantalizing lead with the president of CNN International. I was flown down to Atlanta to meet with um, with the president and I sat in his office. And, I, and that is a big meeting. That was a meeting where I went in thinking, I have to make the right decision here, but my 
insecurities about money. They were clawing at me. They were so loud in my ear. But there's also another little aside to this, and that's that I had this very sick realization somewhere along the line during my brief career in news that it was wide of the mark. And I thought, my God, I've gone to the ends of the earth to pursue something and I've made a mistake. I don't know what it is about news that's not quite right for me, but what do I do now? And I actually was pretty candid with the president of CNN, uh, Tony Maddox, who is, I don't know if he's still there actually, but I will say that he was incredibly genuine and generous with me in his advice. He said, listen, Patricia, everybody wants to go to Baghdad just like you do. I know I'm sure people listening are like, nobody wants to go to Baghdad. Why do you want to go to Baghdad? Not, it was during a war, but when you're in news, you want to go to Baghdad. He said, look, everybody on, in the newsroom wants to go to Baghdad. So do you. You're going to have to start at the bottom. You're going to make almost no money. You're going to have to live in the suburbs. You're going to have to work nights. And all of those insecurities in my head started piling up everything I'd worked for. I'd, since I was a kid, I'd wanted to move to New York City. That was my biggest dream. And I just looked at him and I said, I'm, I'm not sure. And he said, then don't. I flew home. I called JP Morgan and I said, I'll come work for you. And then I was back in it for a short period of time, but I was back in it. It's interesting to me that you have these major sort of inflection points that after this whole banking career, all the stability you built for yourself, you have this sort of reckoning with the promise you made to yourself and with the, the banking, Patricia, and the unknown. Mm. And then after this experience, it's almost like you go through another test where you see these two versions of yourself, yeah. you know, these two possible paths mm. and, and have to make that decision. So you take this job at JP Morgan, you kind of slide back into that comfortable space, into that financial security. How did you end up leaving that? Because you said it's a short time that you yeah, fell off the wagon. I don't know. <laughs> what does one say? The only thing that was comfortable about JP Morgan was the money that I made. I have to say, quite candidly, that is the most vicious place I have ever worked. I have never been so repeatedly stabbed in the back so many times. It was astonishing. There were definitely great people there, but I've never worked in such an aggressive environment. Credit Suisse was a beautiful place to work. There were very kind people. We had a good laugh, not so JP Morgan. And so I'd come back from following a dream. You know, I, I go into this and I don't know why I didn't go back to Credit Suisse. That's another story which I'm not even, I don't even have a story about. I just don't know. Anyway, I go to JP Morgan and um, a couple things, you know, one of the things you do when you go onto a, into a new uh, relationship, when you're in on a trading floor working in sales is you bring your clients to them. I had a couple of clients who'd followed my progress through Mongolia and they were really keen to support me in my new role. And that ruffled some feathers at JP Morgan. And I just got into a very a bust up with two fellow salespeople, one of whom was my dotted line boss. And I just, I thought, wow, what have I done here? I called one of my clients who had been supporting me, who had given me some business. And he said to me, what have you done? What have you done with your life? And this is the person who said to me, you've gone to the ends of the earth to pursue your dream and you've ended up here. What a disappointment. I put the phone down. <laughs> I thought, uh, he's right. And then I had this giant bust up with a client. And the one thing I was actually thinking about writing a second book and starting it out with this extraordinary story, or at least for me, it's extraordinary. I sat down with my actual boss, not the one who stabbed me in the back. And he said to me, please stay. He wrote on it on a piece of paper, a six figure number, very high six figure number. He put it in front of me. And he said, I will take this out of my own bonus to make you stay. Wow. And I, I looked at that and I thought, 
something's going to happen here. If I stay, I think I needed to stay for six more months to earn that number. I thought this is a, a huge inflection point for me. If I stay and earn that money, something amazing is not going to happen in my life. People who are more pragmatic listening to this are going to think I'm the biggest idiot. And the pragmatic part of my brain looks back and says, with that money, life would be very different. But so what? What would be better about life with a different digit at the end of my bank account? So it's it's interesting, though, that several times you were always driven by this need for the financial security and, and all of the stuff you were talking about in terms of your childhood and that safety. But then when it actually comes down to it, I mean, whether it's the job at Goldman over a decade earlier or this where you're, you know, you're quite literally faced with a check. This is such a unique situation where someone's in your face saying, stay and here's this money. There aren't a lot, I mean, definitely not journalism. <laughs> this is not a common thing in journalism. I can tell you that much uh, as our uh, vacations. And that's the moment that you actually know that you have to walk away. The moment that you are confronted with that amount of money. Decision, a really foolish decision, but it changed my life completely. Completely. Tell me, tell me about how uh, because of that, I went to work for a friend for a little while, helping him set up a currency business, but I wasn't in a sales role anymore. I was just sort of helping out. When we reached a break in what we were doing and that there was nothing I could do, I was told by him, hey, take a leave of absence for a few weeks. And of course, this wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to take a leave of absence at JP Morgan. Because I did, I actually had a chance to go on this amazing last minute trip, a road trip down the East Coast of Africa. Um, after I came back from that road trip, the legal stuff that came that didn't come through gave me the opportunity to travel one more time. And that one more time landed me in Hong Kong. I bumped into a guy and the guy and I talked to each other. This is at the Hong Kong Sevens. For anybody who's been to the Hong Kong Sevens, you know it's a party. Ostensibly, it's a rugby match. Nobody's really watching the rugby as much as they are dressed up in costume and drinking vodka Red Bull at 11 o'clock in the morning. And to bump into this person, you know, we were talking to each other and having a great time. And he turns to me and he says, what would I do to take a beautiful girl out to dinner in New York? And I, being a little bit blonde, had a blonde moment. I said, why are you asking me about some other woman? Don't waste my time. <laughs> I stormed off. And well, there was vodka red involved. I feel like you can blame it on that. I will. Thank you. I'll take that. That's <laughs> not the truth, but thank you. I stormed off and I thought I'll never see him again. And the next day, my friends and I were feeling a little bit rough. We had no plans to return to the second day of the rugby match. And we both looked at each other and basically simultaneously said, oh, we're going to have FOMO if we don't go. There were no tickets left. She was quite well connected in Hong Kong. She managed to get two tickets for us from bribed from somebody else. I don't know. Some sort of situation happened. I walk into the stadium, we find these last two seats of this sold out event, and the seats were right in front of the guy who had said to me this the thing yesterday. This is actually, in the, it's such a crazy story, it's in the New York Times. And about a week later, he flew to New York on his way home from New Zealand. He was living in London, so he flew Hong Kong, New Zealand, London, but he actually rerouted his flight to stop in New York. We had one night together, just to see. And we had burgers and beers and I ended up marrying him. And we have two kids. Oh my God. That never, it couldn't, it, but it's simply not possible that would have happened because I wouldn't have taken the time off to do all that travel. Isn't that incredible to think about how one decision or non-decision or whatever it is just completely changes the course of our life. It is incredible. Those, in, those moments, sometimes you got to just take the risk. I remember in your book, 
There's a point where you say in Mongolia years earlier that you had this thinking that you were not cut out for kids, which I think a lot of people have at some point mm. um, in their lives, if not all the way up until the moment they have kids. Where were you at when you had your your first son? I mean, how did that change you? Or was it your, your daughter first? My daughter, yeah. I, to be honest, it's an insecurity that I still have, that I'm not the right person for kids. When I met Jesse, my husband, I looked at him and I thought, I want to have kids with that man. It was just so primal. And when we had our daughter, you know, I, I don't really know. I never thought I'd be a good mom. When she was born, I just fell in love. And the same thing happened when he was born. I definitely still have my moments of, my, my kids are eight and nearly six. I have these moments of thinking, would they be better off with someone who likes to stay home and doesn't have aspirations. I don't know if that's true, but I know that one thing I can bring to the table to them is a sense of curiosity about the world. I am absolutely still passionate about overseas travel. I've taken them on adventures. Uh, we've started small in New Zealand. We go trekking sometimes and us oh, even making my voice break a bit because I, you know, over lockdown, it was really hard and New Zealand's better off of course, than almost every other place in the world. But not being able to travel, not being able to go home to see my family who are in, you know, scattered all over the US, but particularly in Cincinnati, my parents, that was, that was tough. But what we did was we traveled from my laptop. So we went to France, we went to Bangladesh, we went to Greece, and we cooked the food, we listened to the music, we watched YouTube videos, we looked at Wikipedia, we looked at maps, we found stories. The food was the best part though, because I was able to bring all those passions back from back when I was in uh, at Cornell doing some sort of culinary thing briefly. I really enjoyed being able to take them to digitally to Bangladesh. It's a place I hadn't really considered going. You know, there are a lot of countries in the world and you've got your, your interests. Mine happens to be Asia, Central Asia in particular now, but that was pretty special. And the last trip I went on with my daughter, just the two of us, we went off to uh, to the Arctic, actually. And then, you know, afterwards, the kids have said to me, we're saving up for the Trans-Siberian. So that's been, I think the thing about being a parent is that when you have this ideal in your mind that you're supposed to be baking cookies and staying home all the time, you don't actually bring to the kids what it is you're about. And that's what they really want, because that's in their DNA you are there, you're a part of them. So bring to them what it is that makes you special. I don't know how to pursue being an adventurous mom. I'm not going to do it perfectly. Even today, my kids had, they have their assembly today and I've got a huge deadline next week for my, the degree that I'm doing now. And I had to say to them, I'm sorry, I can't come. And I feel awful about those things. The little voice, the same you know, little voice that's always on my shoulder, often, every day says to me, wouldn't you be better off just doing all those things for them? But I don't know. It's, time will only tell. Would I be better off? I'd like to think not. I'd like to think, actually, they would not be better off. But who knows? Yeah. I have to say, I think so. I think, I think they are better off with you and with any parent. I really believe that, following and, and doing what it is that they love. And I think that's an amazing example for kids to have. And I think that the those questions and those dilemmas of being torn and feeling like you can't be everywhere all the time. I think that's probably one of the most universal feelings that parents have around the world. I mean, I, I don't think there's anybody that hasn't experienced that for what I see and hear. Before I let you go to your deadlines, 
I'm curious about sort of two other things, which is you spent this time at Sinovision where you were actually interviewing people who overcame obstacles to pursue their passions. I just wonder from that experience, was there something that that stands out to you that you remember in terms of the stories you heard or the understanding of that maybe you gathered of what it takes or kind of lessons learned from other people who were also going out of their way to do what they want to do? The chance to work at Sinovision was one of those crazy things where it was because I was pursuing a passion for the Chinese language that I got tapped by my teacher at NYU who was knew someone at a Chinese network, which happened to be Sinovision, looking for a TV host. So it was a really, you know, um, fortuitous sort of uh, meeting point. But in any case, I interviewed some really amazing, amazing characters. Alan Gilbert, the former head of the New York Philharmonic, Long Long, the concert pianist from Beijing, China, Lou Reed, uh, an opera star, an artist. It was just, it was extraordinary meeting these people. But I think the thing that came through in all of the interviews, except for Lou Reed's, because he characteristically walked off set and refused to talk anymore. I felt kind of proud. <laughs> like, you know, okay, if Lou Reed's walking off the set. At least you got the full experience. <laughs> um, he also grabbed my bottom, but that's another story. I can think I can say that because he's passed away. But uh, Long Long in particular was probably the one who encapsulated what the theme that I had experienced myself and pretty much what everyone else had said. And he told me this story about a professor or a piano teacher that he'd had as a young child. This woman, I believe it was a woman, this is you know more than 10 years ago that he told me the story, but he had this teacher who was so mean to him and she kept telling him how awful he was. So to me, this is the little voice on my shoulder that is always telling me, how, is very critical and telling me what I'm doing wrong and how I'm never gonna make it. But he actually had a real person doing this to him. And he called her, according to him, he called her Professor Angry. And he went on to, you know, obviously become one of the most famous, most celebrated, most talented concert pianists in the world. But how did he get from Professor Angry to that? And it was because he continued, even when he didn't believe himself, to every single day, he put his one foot in front of the other towards his dream. And that was it. And there were some days where he hated his dream. You know, you can't love every part of a dream. Sometimes your dream is a nightmare. But if you keep going, you're going to get there. That's great advice, especially when we can tend to look at the bigger picture and something can seem like a mountain and it can seem insane or insurmountable or so much self-doubt and just to sort of look directly ahead, just one foot in front of the other. Long Long actually gave our group a real gift. I asked him if he would play something for us. And what I really wanted him to play, I love classical music. And what I wanted him to play was Rachmaninoff. Rachmaninoff, I think, I'm not sure about this, has the most keystrokes per second of any piano piece ever created. And he sat down at the piano and from memory played Rachmaninoff one, I think it was. Yeah. And I just sat there spellbound that this person who had been so criticized as a kid, I'm going to even get emotional now. He believed in himself. And he made it. And that's something that I've taken with me all these years, that you, you've got to just keep going because you eventually get there, despite the little critic on your shoulder or the person right in front of you. Yeah. And everybody has that critic. Mm. You know, a lot of times we just look outward and people feel like it's only them, you know, it's just me that has this self-doubt or I must be in the wrong place or pursuing the wrong thing because I have all of this doubt or uncertainty or self-criticism. But 
the most successful people, you know, for whatever success means in this case, you know, this incredible musician have the same thing. So it's a really human experience. Just one final thing I've got to ask you about, which is the happiness idea. Just tell everyone briefly what this is about for you, what you learned from it, because I feel like this is really something that is a a little bit of a cherry on top in a way of this incredible winding path journey that you'd made. The happiness idea was uh, a result of me having traveled to lots of different places and constantly being told by people, wow, if I, I just need this thing. And I thought, wow, you know, a thing is easy to get. Why not match things with people who have resources? But it, it really was about more than that. It was about the human connection that we make when we really listen to someone else's story. And it all started with one story in particular, which was I'd been in Mongolia and there was a little girl that I met uh, later on in my later travels and contact with the country. I found out that this girl, she was probably about nine at the time. She had a dream to become a circus contortionist. I mean, okay, that's, you know, I love crazy dreams. And that to me seemed like a really crazy dream. She lived up in the north of Mongolia um, amongst the reindeer people. It couldn't have been a less likely story for someone to pursue a dream than her story. Basically, she taught herself contortion. She proved herself to her parents that she was capable of going down this path. Her parents decided to take her a gamble. They moved the entire family, which included a disabled child that was under the parents' care. They took the entire family, moved from the reindeer area up in Siberia down to the capital. There couldn't be a bigger disconnect for a move. At the time, at least I was told, they don't really use money in that part of Siberia. You know, they sort of trade and they use the reindeer to survive. It's not the same as moving to the capital city of a major Central Asian Republic. Anyway, they get to the capital, it's winter, it's cold, they've got nothing, neither parent can get a job, and now the cold in Mongolia is minus 40 degrees, which is the same in centigrade as Fahrenheit. And they're they're struggling. The father made a very unfortunate decision. He went out to one of the mines, and as the story goes, he stole from one of the mines. And when he stole this product, whatever it was, he left the mine, he stumbled, it was nighttime, he stumbled across another traveler, or another, somebody on the road. The guy said to him, have you gotten anything? And the father of this young girl said, yeah, I got enough to pay for a circus costume for my daughter. She's going to circus school. The circus costume was the equivalent of about US dollars. This is all she needed to get into circus school. She had been accepted. She just needed a costume to attend. The man who her father, you know, was talking to murdered him. Oh my God. 60 bucks. And when I heard this story, I thought something Something can be done about this. Something, I mean, I can't, obviously I can't unwind what a tragedy this is for the entire family, for the man, for the life. But knowing people who work in banking, it's, you know, let's give the girl a costume. And what else does the family need? So we made contact uh, through a filmmaker called Ed Neff, who's initially stumbled on the story and, and alerted me to it. And we, he and I worked together. He threw a big fundraiser at the Kennedy Center in, in Washington, D.C. I went to the fundraiser with my husband to attend. And then we held another fundraiser in New York. We also found out that the mother needed, uh, she needed some money for rent. She needed some medical uh, supplies because she'd become quite sick. I don't know if it was anxiety or something more serious. The language barrier at that point was becoming quite tricky. But what happened was the Mongolian mission to the United Nations ended up working with me for the New York part of our fundraiser. And we just gathered together a bunch of cash. We put it in a diplomatic pouch. We got it to the family. 
the girl went on to, Urango is her name, she went on to circus school. And where does this lead the happiness idea? That stuck with me. The circus costume doesn't matter so much as, as much as the human connection. Why, why are we all here on this planet? What can we do to listen better to someone in need or just listen? And so I started up the happiness idea with the idea of hearing about stories because I was at that point, I was getting a lot of stories of people saying, hey, I know this guy in Albania who needs a goat. Hey, true story. Hey, I know this guy in Fiji. I mean, this, this little girl in Fiji who wants a, an education, but she's got learning disabilities. Can we help? And so I thought, let's just help, but let's also have the conversation. So we started shooting video of people and, and having them tell their story. And critically, um, we also wanted the subjects of the story to get back and say, hey, this worked out for me. I can read now. I've got to go, whatever it is. Because I feel like a lot of times when you watch the news, you don't get to hear the follow-up. Sure. It's just all negativity. And you're like, man, the world sucks. It's ending. But this time I was trying to say, hey, there's something out here and we can make a change. And here's the impact. And the most amazing part of it was, uh, well, uh, the most amazing part of it was, was making a difference. But also we got to meet um, with the Dalai Lama about uh, two and a half years ago. And I held his hand to talk about happiness. It was pretty, pretty special driving to Himalayas to meet His Holiness, which, you know, those moments in life, you're like, wow, thank God I left banking. <laughs> right. I, well, you know what? That's exactly what I was about to say. There's my sort of two takeaways from that is one, your life so far has been peppered by all these experiences that are either profoundly emotional or just the kind of things that leave a mark on you for a really long time that are just so unique and I don't think you would have had that staying on the trading floor or in the big fancy glass office. It's pretty clear that you wouldn't. So good job <laughs> making those decisions and following those dreams and your courage in doing that and sticking to your gut and your intuition that you need to be somewhere else is something I admire so much and I think is so important for all of us to do. And also just you know what you're talking about with the happiness idea, I don't think it could be that whole approach. It couldn't be more relevant than now when... For the last year, we've all been rediscovering what connection means and how much we need it uh, and how much helping others is needed. And it just couldn't be more relevant than this moment. So I think that's a beautiful place to leave off with and, and keep in mind. Patricia Sexton, thank you so much for taking the time to take us through your incredible journey. And I'll remind people the book is live from Mongolia. If they want to hear about some of the, the food that you mentioned, <laughs> that you tasted, and some of the incredible experiences you had. Thank you so much for having me. What a pleasure it's been. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe and please send us your thoughts, any questions that you want answered or women that you'd like to hear from on Twitter at Nari Ben or Instagram at Life Deconstructed Pod. And hold on, here's a peek at next week. Tina Sharkey has spent over two decades building brands, businesses, and platforms. She's a seasoned entrepreneur, investor, speaker, board member, and mentor who's been firmly placed on big name lists like the top 100 people transforming business and the most daring entrepreneurs. We talked about everything from handling the tougher moments of business to the key things she teaches as a mentor. Being confident that you don't need to always have the right answer, but it's okay to ask the question. And so being confident, I think that's one of my great skills is I'm never afraid to be a student. I'm Nuri Ben. We'll see you next week on Life Deconstructed.